Footballers' Lives with Richard Lenton is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Hello everyone, thank you once again for downloading Footballers' Lives and thanks for the comments on the first couple of episodes featuring Michael Thomas and Craig Schutt, great lads who I really enjoyed catching up with. Now, today's episode features former Liverpool and England midfielder and current match of the day pundit Danny Murphy, a man who went from cheering on his Reds heroes on the cot with his old man to turning out for the club he loves and winning a handful of honours, including that fantastic and, I think, underappreciated treble under Gerard Houllier in 2001. Now, if you've seen Danny in action as a pundit, you'll know that he's a straight-talking fella who pulls no punches. So, some fascinating insights here into life as a footballer, including some of the murkier aspects of the game and as you'd expect some brilliant anecdotes as we explore his journey from precociously talented teenager under Dario Gradi at crew to the heartbreak of missing out on Istanbul in 2005, that amazing run to the Europa League final with Fulham, the madness of life at Blackburn under the Venkis and Steve King and an unfulfilled journey with the England national team. Enjoy. Okay, Danny, I'm going to take you back. July 2013, you've got a year left on your Blackburn contract, but the next minute you're on match of the day as a new pundit. And I know that punditry jobs for footballers are incredibly difficult to get. So how did this transition come about? And is it something that you'd always had your eye on? No, not not at all, really. Um, the, the, the Blackburn situation was quite a difficult one and a complex one in that I did have a year left and I anticipated playing out that year. And But the way things had gone in the first year, five different managers and the club was in disarray. And they offered me a deal to terminate my contract, which then would have left me still with the capability of signing for someone else. So I took that deal to go back home south. I was still thinking, you know, if the right opportunity comes, I've, I've got a year left in me. I thought I had anyway. And a couple of things come up that weren't suitable and I didn't want to drag it out. You know, I didn't want to, um, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sure what the right challenge would have been really to tempt me. And the more the time went by, the more I realised it wasn't going to be and, and it was the right time to retire. But I actually hadn't decided that when I got asked to do match of the day. Um, it came a little bit out of the blue really. And I, and I, I can only think it came from some of the work I'd done in the latter stages of my career, um, off-seasons for some of the Euros and World Cups, just little bits here and there. And also, they obviously keep an eye on who's finishing, the way you speak or, you know, the way you conduct yourself. I'm not too sure. So, I got asked to do it. And, and of course, the iconic show, Match of the Day, it's like, oh my God, yeah, of course, I'd love to have a go at it. I didn't anticipate still being doing it now, still doing it now. Um, and they asked me to do, strangely enough, the opening day of the season, which is a massive, massive deal. I didn't know that at the time. So I went in and was enjoying the experience watching games, which I love doing anyway, and then trying to analyse them. And by the time I got to go on air, I hadn't really thought about the size of the audience or the enormity of what I was doing. And... Um, just before I was about to go on air, because it's live match of the day, um, there's no pre-records. So I had a little earpiece in and the producer said, listen, have a good show, boys. Could be a big one tonight. Could be up to 10 million. <laughs> I was like, what? 
How many? Oh, my days. So uh, the nerves set in, hung onto that chair like I was coming down on an aeroplane, let me tell you. But the, um, the experience was great. I, I started doing it a little bit more without ever really thinking too much about where it was leading and what it was doing. I'd started the road of the coaching badges. I was always hopeful of getting into that, coaching and managing more than the media. Um, but it didn't quite materialise. I had a couple of little offers on the coach front that didn't, didn't quite happen. So I just kept up with the media. And the more I did, the more I got offered. And it was giving me a nice life balance, really, in that I was able to see the family. The kids were quite young, see the kids, play a bit of golf. I started taking up golf have a bit of time for me whilst also working and enjoying it and earning a few quid. So it just rolled. I didn't really have a plan. I, my plan was to coach and manage, but I actually ended up more than I thought I would the media side because the match today stuffs, not just turning up before the show and saying, oh, you know, he did well and he did well. You're literally studying the games all day. And it's a test. It is, it is a test to try and look at some of the technical elements and find different things. So yeah, it was it was a bit by accident, and I don't really know who I've got to thank for giving me the opportunity. Probably Mark Cole at the time, who was head of football at the BBC, and he was great for me. And there was a good team there as well. You know, the boys Gary and Alan and people like that really helped me. They didn't, they don't just let you get on with it. They they bring you into it. You know, they do help you. They do make you feel part of it, which is important. Mm. Well, that's interesting because I've worked with lots of pundits down the years and they all kind of vary. A lot of guys like to turn up half an hour or want to turn up half an hour before so that they can stay fresh, in their words, where, whereas you'll have other people who are, want to be at the studio all day. They want to be analysing the graphics and the, and the VTs and talking to the producers about how the show's going to materialise. So I kind of got the impression that you would be in that latter camp. And do you have to be these days? Well, it's, it, dep it depends on the format. So if you're going into a live game where you're just off, you know, if you're off the cuff, you go, you're turning up, you're watching it, and you have a little stint at half-time and full-time. I don't mind that either because obviously that's a bit more pressurised, a bit more intense. And also the co-com I really enjoy because you're, you're, you're seeing it as you go. That's a real test of your knowledge. You know, you can be, you can be made to look silly doing a co-com. Mm. Um, so I actually, even the radio stuff, which is, again, more off the cuff, very rarely planned. The, the pressure around that, I think, produces a better performance from the pundit, generally. The, the planning stuff, I know what you mean. So even match of the day, you're watching games live and you're getting your bits together and you've got time to tweak it and, and rehearse it, if you like. But I don't really do that. I mean, I get my bits together, but a lot of the lads like to go over them and over them and over them in the studio to get it spot on. But I, I find you, you never quite say it how you would the first. So you, I, I just let it be anyway. I'm not, I'm not a big one for going over and over. And it's like doing... The best example I can give is when sometimes you have to do a show that's a pre-record. The amount of times you mess it up is unbelievable because you're looking for perfection. And when you're doing a live one, it's, you don't need to do that. It's, it's just more natural. Mm. It's more organic. Um, so I, I'm not like... I mean, Martin Keown's a good example. He's very thorough. He's very meticulous. He likes to go over his stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But I'd rather just say, let it play and I'll talk over it. And I'll, whatever comes out, comes out. Uh, I used to hate doing the pre-recorded stuff because 
sometimes if you did a little slip up, they do want you to record it all again. And part of you thinks, crikey, we're not saving lives. Just, just hang on a little bit. You end up having to do some sort of, you know, if you, if someone's off the cuff and it's quite funny, it's a real, it's a real reaction of someone laughing or being embarrassed or catching someone out in a, you know, in the studio banter, if you like. If you're doing a prereq, it's like, oh, that was funny, but can you just say it that way? Then it's just not funny anymore. It's like yeah. faking a laugh, you know, or faking a shock. It's a bit like sometimes um, Gary Lineker will do an intro to Match of the Day and he might make a joke about me and Alan Shearer's hair, right, in the earlier day. Well, he still does it now, but when he, when he does it and you don't know what's coming, you, you get a natural reaction from me and Alan. On the odd occasion, we've been in there too early and heard him practising his intro. And you go, oh, no, I've just heard the joke. Like, I didn't want to hear it, because now you're going to get that falseness when it comes out. Most, most pundits I work with enjoy the, the live stuff. It's, it, although it's a bit more intense and a bit more pressured, it, it, I think they enjoy the, 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 the it's, it, it's reality. It, it's, 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 no, it's more normal. It's more organic. Yeah, absolutely. Really natural. And I think there's a link to your football pundry punditry with your early days as a player because I'm right in saying that Dario Gradi at Crewe recognised this football brain early on and he used to send you out on scouting missions. <laughs> well, I, I, he, he was a massive part of my education on and off the field in many ways. I was about 13 when I met him um, and went to Crewe. And I think because I loved football and watching it and talking about it, I was very inquisitive. You know, he, he, not not everyone was like me. I was always questioning and always probing and giving opinions, probably to the detriment of myself as I got older. But um, he he embraced that and he'd ask my advice. I mean, I, of course, or he'd send me on a little scout mission locally to where I lived or go and watch a player somewhere or whatever it may be. And although... I don't know whether he valued my opinion greatly, but I think he thought it was very good for me from an educational point of view to go and do those things anyway. Um, and he made me feel like I was valued, even if he was kind of inwardly thinking, oh God, what's he talking about? But I, um, yeah, I was very fortunate because I was, I was in a, I was in a, I was, a, I was at a club that was very much about player development and progression, not about winning. It really was a priority because that's how the club survived, on making players better, becoming first-team players and selling them on. It wasn't all about, obviously, team winning would be a bonus. But it was about development of me as a human being in the early years in terms of knocking that precociousness out of me and that moaning and that you know, like attitude and anger I had within me that probably came from other areas, actually. Um, and, and honing that into my football you know, he was very good at that and making me aware of um, some of the things I needed to do that I probably wasn't doing. Um, he, he was a very, very good influence on me. And, and obviously, because of the club's lack of finances and reliance on the youngsters, he, he gave me that opportunity to play when I was very, very young. And of course, I had to, I had to have a certain ability and talent to be able to grasp that opportunity. And I did. But I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I think back now, playing, you know, the likes of, oh, it could be Wigan away in, in Hereford, Scunthorpe, all those places and, and coming up against established pros who'd been who'd played hundreds of league games, you know, 
six two, thirty years old, trying to smash the life out of you, and you're seventeen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. You know, giving them a bit of banter, trying to nutmeg them and play around them, and all. it was great. And I was very lucky as well because I had probably the most the, the guy who looked after me the most when I first got in the team was Neil Lennon. Um, he was a tough guy. He was a good player, one of the best players in in that division at the time, and he used to just guide me through the games really in my very very early days it was yeah. great having someone like him around and lots of other good players came through didn't they a little bit before your time David Platt I think there was Rob Jones Seth Johnson Robbie Savage and others but what do you remember of your debut it was December 1993 you were only 16 Bradford City Football League trophy tie not the biggest game in the world but I bet it was for you do you know what I don't I I don't think, was that my sub-debut, I think? Not my full debut, was it? Sub-debut, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, no, me, me, me first, my full, I don't remember it. I remember, I'll tell you what I remember. I remember playing again as a sub, so it was probably second or third appearance. You've actually jolted my memory if it's <laughs> Bradford, but I remember my full debut, that was Huddersfield away. But my, my sub-debut, yeah, my, probably Bradford, uh, but... The one I remember was coming off the bench before I'd ever started a game and scoring in a top-of-the-table clash at home to Preston, the winner. We beat them 4-3, and Davey Moyes was playing centre-half for Preston. So, um, that's why I remember it. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the full debut was uh, one of those... I don't know what the competition was called at the time. Probably something you just said. It's like uh, Leyland Daft, did you say? LD Vans. LD Vans or something like that. Yeah. We played Huddersfield away in a the old stadium. I forgot what it was called. And uh, we lost 3-2, I think. And I scored a 25, 30-yarder in the top corner. And um, I think that was probably when I realised on the full day, because I played so well amongst that company, that I was going to be all right at that level. You know, I, I found it really easy in mm. that game. Because when you come off the bench for five to ten minutes, not the same. No. And you had a few years there, but and I know you won loads of trophies at Liverpool, but where does that 1997 playoff final win against Brentford rank? Because all of a sudden the club are in the second tier for the first time in a century. And like you said before, they were just a club who were trying to develop players in, in order to sell them and survive. So what do you remember of that day? Because that was the old Wembley Stadium, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember it well. Um, the, the, the rise of the club, was monumental in, in, in football terms because of the size of the town. Very, very small. When he took it over, it was an absolute bin. I mean, there was nothing there. He developed that club from, from nothing. To get to the championship was bigger than Leicester winning the league. That's the only way I can try and give you some sort of... Much bigger. The chances of that happening when he took over, or when you saw the facilities of that lack of at that club, and how badly it was supported, and how, it, 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 it was unbelievable. Not that we understood that, or I understood that at the time, because I was on my own journey. Um, my journey was just about progressing, playing well, and getting to the top. Although I enjoyed playing for crew, of course I did. I knew it was a stepping stone. I wanted it to be a stepping stone. <laughs> but that final, um, I remember it well, because I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be fit. So we played Luton in the two-legged semi and I come off in the second, near the end of the second leg. Luton were fancy to beat us, actually. We played really well. And I'd done something to me in my groin area. Like it wasn't a complete tear, but it was something that we couldn't move the net for the next few days. 
But there's always a bit of a window from the second leg to the final, about 10 days, maybe 12, I can't remember. So I went to see this specialist and they said, oh, it's A, B, or what, A, B, C, whatever it is. It's a little thing and, you, and you'll have to just do nothing till the game to give you any chance, but it's unlikely you're going to be fit. So I didn't train. And on the morning um, of the day at Wembley, we went for a little walk in this local park somewhere near Wembley. Nobody bothered us. We are only crew, weren't we? <laughs> and um, um, so I was walking and I went with the fitness guy and had a little jog and a little side to side. And it felt all right. Got to Wembley, went out on the pitch, boiling hot as well. Went out early with the guy, and did a bit more. Felt fine. And I had these big, thick cycling shorts on to try and give you some extra support. Anyway, it lasted nearly the whole game. It came back to me just near the end. So I managed to play. And I think because I was so worried about not playing, I didn't actually think about the pressure of what that game meant mm. or what you who know, I was up against. Because Brentford were a good side. I think they'd beaten us twice that season as well. Um, but we murdered them. I mean, we absolutely battered them, um, and I was on—I I was on fire. Actually, I don't mind saying it. I was—I I, just—I couldn't get enough of the ball. I was—I don't know how I didn't score. I think hit the post and missed a couple of sitters. But we beat them one 0 Could have been five or six. Yeah, but playing as and, a number um, ten at the old Wembley, you must have had loads of space, and you were playing off Delhi Ali Adi Bowler, weren't you? So must have been good. Yeah, fun. well, we—I was actually playing. It wasn't really. Yeah, we had two tens. If you like, played in the midfield three. And I was the one that ventured forward a bit more. But it was a free roll and it was a lovely roll. Um, and we were actually tactically ahead of most of the teams we played against with Dario. You know, we, we'd worked on our system. Um, but it was, it, was, it was also really special in that I knew it was my last game. I mean, it didn't end up being my last game because I went back on loan a, a bit later. But in terms of I knew that I was moving after that game. and. The, the celebrations, we were, I went back home to Chester for the night, celebrated with some friends and ended up in wine bars in a crew track. So I knew the owners let me in and all that. But the next day I flew off. I met, met with England under 20s. I flew off to the World Youth Championship. I went to that tournament. Um, I was away five or six weeks without doing the Liverpool deal. So I knew so, Liverpool wanted me. They'd agreed in principle. I did speak to Tottenham as well, but I could have got injured on that trip. Didn't even cross my mind. I just went and played. Couldn't fit it in to get the medical done and sign and all that business. So I've, I've, I've gone home on the Saturday after the game, gone out on the lash, got up Sunday, packed a bag, gone down to, back to London to meet the, 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 uh, the England under-20 squad. And then we flew out to Singapore to acclimatise for the World Youth Championship in Malaysia. It was a manic, manic few months. Brilliant. No, I was going to ask you how the Liverpool move came about, but you said it then. And obviously, I'm assuming you were a big fan of the club as a kid. And did you go to games? Did you go to Anfield when you were a kid a lot? Yeah, well, um, I, I went in, first game was 85 with my dad on a cop. Um, so I didn't go to every game. And then a couple of years later, we got season tickets. For the 87-88 season, because that was just about the best Liverpool team I've seen. Yeah, um, so yeah, it, yeah, I would have had them probably, uh, for about three years we had them. So yeah, it would have been 80, 80, yeah, 87-90, to 90, I think it was, or 88-91, to 91, I can't quite recall. But went to loads of games, yeah, went to finals. Um, and all I, all I ever, from the minute I went, the first time I went and was on the cop and stood that game, 
I was just, you know, blown away by it. I couldn't, I loved it. Um, I, all I ever wanted to do was play for Liverpool. I wanted to be a footballer and play for Liverpool. I never, ever thought about playing for England. I never thought about Barcelona or playing in the Championship or playing for Crew. I never, all I wanted to do was play for one day. If I could just get and play on that, that's it. That's the only thing I ever thought about. And, um, yeah, moving forward, you just say about the Liverpool move coming up. There is actually a story behind that, and, and it's I've, 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 I'll tell it again quickly because I've told it a lot, and people probably heard it a lot. But the middle of that last season for Crew, I was flying, scoring a lot of goals, and uh, I got a phone call. I sat at my mum's and I got a phone call. I picked up the phone, and it was Scottish accent, and it was like, you know, I done it. It's uh, Kenny Dalglish. And I was like, so I told, I, I, my friends are jokers. There'd been a bit of speculation in the paper, but, you know, I, no way. He was my hero, by the way. Yeah. Manager in Newcastle. So I told him where to go and put the phone down. <laughs> because I thought it was one of the lads messing around. So he called me back, put the phone down again. Next night, calls again. But this time I'm starting to think, oh, God, what is going on here? Is this real? <laughs> convinces me it's him I'm apologetic of course about the night before do you want to come to Newcastle yeah of course I do go you know play for you Jesus yeah of course well you're going to have to have a word with your manager because we made a bid and he's saying it's nowhere near I think it was half a million quid at the time I ended up going for one and a half um, so I went in to see Dario and Dario said to me look because he's like a dad to me it was a hard conversation and he said look I didn't want to tell you, you're flying, we're doing well, you're not going anywhere till the end of the season. And Liverpool have already said they want you. I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want it to affect you and get in your head. Um, but Liverpool have already said they'll pay what we're asking, which is one and a half. Newcastle are offering half a million, which is a joke. Um, so, you know, if at the end of the season you want to go there and they offer the same, I don't think you will want to go there at the Liverpool, but then you can speak to them. So I've let Kenny know and he was understanding and all that. And then um, we go on to have the promote. Well, actually, sorry, I miss a bit out. So to, to confirm Dario's words, he then arranges a meeting for a couple of days later. This is mid-season where at his house, <coughs> which is probably illegal, to meet, for me to meet Peter Robinson and Ray Evans. Wow. So I'm just there going, oh, wow, you know, I'm 19 um, or whatever. Yeah, 19 at the time. Sat with Roy Evans, Peter Robinson, the chief exec, and Dario, and, and they're saying, look, we want you. It's not going to change. Keep playing. Keep doing what you do. It doesn't matter. You don't feel any pressure from now to then. Go and enjoy your football. We'll make it happen. So I was just like, oh, what? This is too much. So, yeah, and then when I got back from Malaysia, it happened. It was, well, it was, a, it was a bit of a story around that, but it happened. And then all of a sudden, you're walking into that Liverpool dressing room for the first time. It's the height of this so-called Spice Boys era. What was that dressing room like to walk into and who took you under the wing? A bit surreal, really. Um, I knew Michael and Cara because I've just been away with them. I knew them anyway, but I'd been away with them for four, five, five weeks, six weeks, wherever it was, which was great. Because when you walk into an environment like that, it's nice having somebody familiar who you can, you know, talk to. But I have to say, the senior boys were good as gold. Um, 
I think my first day I ended up doing some running with John Barnes, who was my hero. Kenny was my first hero, then it was John Barnes, and he was still there. So he took me under his wing on the first couple of days, which was amazing. Um, Red Knight was great. He lived locally as well, well, to where I, not far where I was. So he was, <clears throat> you know, always offering a bit of lunch and just talk you through anything you want. And Robbie and Macca were good as gold. Two lads I looked up to idolised in many ways because they were the stars at the time. Um, always willing to, ch- you know, n- never felt like any of them were above you. It was a very, very humble environment there that I, I didn't expect. There was a lot of banter and stuff like that, but nobody, you, you never looked at anyone and thought, God, he, you know, who's he think he is? There was a real down-to-earthness about the club. Um, and that was probably rooted from many years, decades before, you know, the club started from Shankly and things were still done the same way then until Ullier came in. Mm. Um, but it was amazing and, and I actually... First year really took it, it. I really enjoyed it and flowed with it. I was involved. I was always off the bench. I started a few games, being around a few played reserve games as well. But just enjoying the whole thing really. Um, I, I probably didn't understand the change that was needed to progress at that level. I was still going the same places, drinking. I was still. Um, acting out the same way, you know, a few scraps here and there, going to the wrong bars. And all of a sudden, everything had changed overnight. Everyone knew who I was. So that was probably something I didn't deal with very well. Um, But I didn't really know that while it was happening. And do you think that's why maybe the club found out, didn't like what they were hearing, and that's why maybe they sent you back on loan to crew? It wasn't the club. It was Julier. Julier came in. Tried to do the joint manager thing, ended up getting the role on his own and wanted change. He had the Wenger mentality, things were going to move forward quickly. So he got rid of a lot of senior boys. Um, he brought in some of his own players. The training changed. The old Liverpool way was gone. It was different types of training. Sports science was improved. Nutrition was improved. Rules became, became regimented overnight, really. Time, you know being on time, wearing the right things, um, the intensity of training changed. And obviously, while this transition was going on, um, I was left behind a little bit in that he was picking the players he entrusted at the time. He was trying to, I think he was trying to work out who he was getting rid of and keeping. And I wasn't really getting involved. I'd actually gone backwards the second season. Um, and he said to me, do you want to, you know, like, I was talking to him a lot and he was good. he was a good communicator and I had Ipswich and Crew um, take me on loan Crew were bottom Championship Ipswich were top so I said well I'd rather go Ipswich to be honest because they're playing good football winning games it'll be better for me I'll get more from it and obviously if you don't want me next beginning of next season I'm in the shop window I mean, not that I wanted to leave, but I knew that I was talking, you know, we were being, re- it, was a rea- it was a reality of it. Um, so he turned around and simply just said, look, you either go to crew or you don't go anywhere, you stay here. Full stop. What are you doing? I was like, what? <laughs> Where's the logic? But okay, I'll go to crew. So I went to crew, went to see Dario, started playing. Seth was there, lad called Rodney Jack. We had a few good players. We stayed up somehow. I don't know how we did it. We beat all the top teams. We, we played well. And I went back the next pre-season and he said to me, 
you, you, you're in my plans. He said, you wouldn't have been if you'd have said no to going back to crew. I wanted to see your passion. I wanted to see how much you wanted it. I watched you enough. You did well. We'll get you fit and I'll get you in the team. But if you want to get fit, you're going to have to listen to me. Be patient and I'll work with you. And every time he gave me little carrots and every time he asked me to do something, I did it. And then he backed it up. Every time he said, if you do this, he'll give me that. He gave. He got me in the team, etc. And then it just went on and on and on. He was an amazing manager. At that stage, he could walk on water, couldn't he? You know, it really felt like the, there was a successful team developing. And then all of a sudden, you've got that 2000-2001 season where everything happened. And I think it's a little bit underrated that season because as well as winning the FA Cup, the League Cup and the UEFA Cup, you finished third in the league. It was a hell of a season. It was, and it, and it, it all happened quite quickly and probably sooner than even he anticipated. There was a really good chemistry at the club um, in terms of the lads. There was a good mix, some young, hungry players. There was me, Cara, Stevie coming through, um, Michael, obviously. And then there was... Obviously, the senior boys like Gary Mack, um, Deep Mahaman, people like that. Robbie was still there. <clears throat> we had a and then we had some of the foreign lads who came in and were led the way in the professionalism and the way they conducted themselves and trained. And you know, they joined in as well. It was it was considering there was a lot of big names there. There was no problems. I mean, it's always easy keeping players happy when there's lots of games to play. But there was a real nice vibe. And we just grew with the momentum grew as the season went on. We had a bit of luck along the way, which you need, of course, when you win three trophies. Um, but everyone was on the same page. The belief, uh, we knew how we were played as well. There was a real identity to us. We weren't the most flamboyant. We weren't the most um, attack-minded side. But we knew what we did. We knew what we did off to a tee. You know, we were hard to beat. Very, very disciplined. And we could break. And we had Michael Owen, who was at the time, one of the best strikers in the world. Mm. And was it easy to accept then playing out of position? You were playing wide left quite a bit, weren't you? Or the left-hand side of midfield. Was it easy to accept because A, you were winning and B, it was the club. It was your club, Liverpool. Well, he said to me, look, to get in the team, you're going to have to play. I played off the front. I wanted to be a centre mid and then off the front. But he said, look, to get in the team, you're going to have to play on the right or the left. You don't have to be a winger. The way we play, you can be a mid. You're gonna to have to get fit enough to do that job. It's the hardest role in football. Wide one of them, midfield four. The running tells you that. Anybody who's played it would tell you that. You play on the right. It's a graveyard shift. So I played on the right a lot. Stevie and Diddy in the middle. Diddy a man. And when Stevie goes off on his, you know, those big athletic runs and goes off and wins the games, I'd tuck in and sit with Deepmar. And sometimes I played on the left, depending who was fit and stuff. We had Smicer, we had Barnby. We had different options. Later, it was Jufi. Um, so, I played on the left a bit, but it was more restrictive on the left because when you're right-footed and your left ain't great, you don't really want to go on your left. But the advantage was that I was getting in more scoring positions because I was drifting in more. So, every time I moaned to Julian, I don't know I'd rather play on the right than the left. He used, to, he used to bring out the stats and say, well, you've scored this amount of goals on the left. You've only scored this many on the right. So, where do you want to play? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll play anywhere. I don't care. Just get me in the team. But the right was easier in terms of having more options. Left was a, you've got to think. When you're right foot playing on the left, you've got to think. And you need someone on the left who's bombing around you a lot. But I didn't care, really. Um, I was, I hated not playing, but I was absolutely buzzing to play 
in for Liverpool. It didn't matter what sh- it didn't matter what position. Yeah, really. it really didn't. Then I think you missed out on that League Cup final win. I think the, you know there were there were different players being used in that. You played the FA. No, I was Cup. injured. Oh, were you injured for that one? Right. Yeah, Rio Rio did me in a tackle at Leeds, and um, I'd play. I'd scored in the semi, two in the semi, and I'd played all the way through. Um, and I was gutted because it was the first big final that we had, and I didn't know there was going to be others. So I was a bit down on myself, really, but I had to suck it up. Um, and actually, back then, I don't know what it is now, but you would only get a medal if you're in the squad on final day, even if you played every other game, which I had, more or less. So you didn't get a medal? So I did, I, I, they went up and got the medals. I didn't get one, even though I'd scored, I'd scored, I think I'd scored four or five in that, in that, in that you know, lead up to the final. As I said, I got two in the semi. Um, so Julio said to me, you haven't got a medal? I said, no, you only get one in if you got stripped on the day. So we went, yeah, I have this one and gave me his. Oh, that's a nice touch. You obviously had a really good relationship with him. Yeah, I did. He, he was, he saw something in me. He decided to give me time and give me his, his expertise and give me an opportunity, and I'll be forever thankful. And we got on really well. Yeah, we did. But the medal, the medal was lovely. It was a nice gesture. But I, when you get medals in football, you know, you know if you've contributed to the success. The medal is secondary, really. Yeah. You know, someone was someone who got stripped that day and was on the bench might have played ten minutes in that whole competition and got a medal, and I did, but it wouldn't have bothered me. Yeah. Oh, but you fully deserve the medal. But what what are your memories of the FA Cup final? Because maybe. Maybe this is my memory playing tricks on me, but I, it felt to me like Arsenal were dominating that game. And I know you came off, you came off, didn't you, late on when you yeah. were one nil down? What were you thinking when you were sat on the bench one nil down with a few minutes to go? Well, I was struggling, mate. To be honest, I I, um, I didn't know it at the time, but I got sunstroke. And um, oh, just on the day. So being stupid at the time, things change in football. You start getting better advice, but. You know, sun cream and all that, you didn't just play, do you know what I mean? It was like, even if you'd offered me sun cream, I'd have said no chance. So you're out on the pitch, you're warming up, and then you're playing. And I was on the right, and Arsenal battered us first half. They were a brilliant side, by the way. We should, they should have been out of sight. And then second half, we turned it round. You know, we started gradually wearing them down a little bit because we were fitter than them. And um, in the, I was playing, it was boiling hot. And I mean boiling at Cardiff. And on my side, I was in the sun first half against Ashley Cole. And I think, I think it was Pires on the left. I can't remember. But I was doing a lot of running. Let's put it that way. And as the game wore on in the second half, I could feel the momentum changing. And I, was, uh, I got tackled or I was down on the physio. Come on, he went, you all right? I said, I'm, I think so. Yeah, like my leg was all right. But I was feeling a bit dizzy. And um, I remember thinking, oh, God, I don't feel right here. When I've stood up, I'm feeling like I might fall over. I said to him, give us a sec, like, and I'm, I'm, anyway, a minute later, I've had to say to, you know, like, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm, I, I can't carry on. I was gutted. So I was just getting my head together, really, as I was sitting on the bench, not just, not thinking about the, the fact we're going to lose, thinking about what the hell's wrong with me, you know what I mean? Why, trying to get myself back to normal. Anyway, the goals have gone in, it's gone off. We, we are celebrating. I'm feeling a bit better. I've obviously had some hydration and all that. We've celebrated. Like, we didn't deserve it, but Michael destroyed them. He got, he got us over the line. And then we got back to the hotel. Um, 
and we couldn't really celebrate anyway because we had the UEFA Cup final going on a few days later. But I couldn't even go out. I couldn't even go and eat and go go for a drink because I was I was in bed. And all I could think of when the doctor came to see me, so he said, "I think you've just got a bit of sunstroke and that," which is you know sounds like a bad excuse, doesn't it? But it was true. And I was thinking, Doc, don't say now to the gaffer because we've got the we've got UEFA Cup final coming up. And and the other thing was as well is that the UEFA Cup final because we haven't played well against Arsenal and they battered us really. For 60 minutes, 55, 60 minutes. Everyone was thinking he's going to make changes. Who's he going to play? And, you know, with the good players we had on the bench, like Berger, Gary, Patrick Berger, Gary Mack, Robbie came off the bench. You know, we, we had some players. So, um, a bit worried about it. And, you know, but you kind of think, well, what can you do? Anyway, he did make some changes. He put, he put Gary Mack in the middle, Stevie on the right, and put me on the left. So he played me in the over kind of played every minute of that and, and the extra time as well. Yeah, and that was so, Liverpool's first European final since Heysel, wasn't it? So it's massive for the city as well. It was an incredible night, that was. And do you know what? We nearly messed it up because it was a bit like a role reversal, what Arsenal did to us. We battered them, really. Uh, it was too easy at times. And we got to 2-0. And I, I, I just felt like it was all a bit easy. You know, it wasn't going to carry on that way. At 2-0, I thought we might do 4 or 5, but I think we all did. And that was the worst thing you could do because they had some good players. They didn't get to that final by luck. <clears throat> anyway, 2-1, then 3-1, you think, OK, we're back to 3-1. We've had a kick up the backside. And they come back again. Um, and, and, you know, we, we got over the line. Gary Mack was brilliant that night. He was absolutely yeah. outstanding. A credit to him. It was a performance of a lifetime. But we all, we, all, we all played okay, to be fair. We all played quite well. We caused them a lot of problems. Um, but the, the realisation when the... Because when, it was golden goal, if you recall. And the realisation when that went in of what we'd achieved probably hit home more than after the FA Cup final. Because it was... We've won again. It was like, we've won them all. Wow. Like, this is... Anyway, so we've won. We're buzzing. We are absolutely elated. We get back to the hotel and we're like, Gaffer, you know, can we have a few bets? He's like, listen, we've got Charlton at the weekend. We, we've got a win to get the Champions League. Two beers and Ben. Like, what? Oh, my God. Because most seasons, if you win one trophy, you have a party, don't you? We've just won two and we haven't had one. So we go to Charlton. He makes a few changes. We're crap. We should have been losing. We're nil-nil half-time. Yeah, I think we were nil-nil half-time. He makes a few changes. I came on, not just me, but there was a few of us come on. We made a few changes. We won 4-0 in the end. And um, we get on the bus. We're all buzzing. We can't really believe the season we've had. We get on the coach, and the driver takes us to the nearest Asda. And all the lads have got shopping trolleys full of booze coming out on the bus. The gaffer's gone. He doesn't care at that point. We go all the way back up to Liverpool, all getting on it. And then we go out for the night down to the Blue Bar at the docks and have a great time. That was the first time we got the chance we got to celebrate. And was that a private do or was it fans everywhere as well? There was a few. No, it wasn't private. The, we, we got back quite late because it was a, you know an afternoon game. So we, we went down there. I think it was a Sunday. So we had some security, but it wasn't that busy. So it was actually a great night. It was a really good night. Yeah. Don't remember too much about it the next day. That wasn't very nice. 
But everything was kicking on so nicely for the club. And the following season, you were flying. It looked like you were going to win the league. Champions League quarterfinals. Doesn't quite happen. But second place was proper progress. But in hindsight, do you think that post-World Cup 2002 recruitment caused issues moving forward for the, for the Julia era? It did, yeah. I mean, probably the biggest one people talk about was not signing an Elka and signing Chief. Mm. The Chief, he was all right um, as a player. He did all right for us, but he wasn't a goal scorer. Um, and Elka was a goal scorer. And he was a presence. He was, we should have signed him full stop. It was a mistake. Um, that, that year we got to the quarterfinal of the Champions League and finished second we were a better side then a um, couple of bad substitutions on the evening at Leverkusen we'd have been in the semi and we had we had a we had a we were, we were beating United a lot then I fancied us against them because we already knew that we'd have got United in the semis but you know that's ifs and buts but we were a better team um, and sometimes you don't get what you deserve, but we were we were moving forward, and and the league position was one better, and everyone felt like we were leading up to a win, the league win, if you like, and even a European win. You know, we felt like we were getting better, but you're spot on. The recruitment wasn't quite right. Um, things didn't quite feel the same around the place. To be honest, there was probably too much French influence. They were good lads. They, you know, I, I didn't have a problem with, with any of them, really. But they be, because the numbers got bigger, the resentment got bigger within us. Maybe it was us being a little bit uneducated and a bit protective of our own. There was a bit, bit of a divide that started. Um, now, that divide sometimes comes because of the lack of quality of the people on the pitch from that, from that nationality, if you like, or from that clique. Um, because if you had, if all of them were brilliant players, it probably wouldn't matter as much. But it felt like a bit of both. Yeah. The players weren't up to standard that he'd brought in. And there was a bit of a clique building that caused a few problems. And that hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it, in football? Well, in life. But, um, yeah, it didn't work out. It, it just went backwards. I mean, mm. we got the League Cup winning. Was that 2003 against United? Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. That was a special day, I have to say. That was a really special day. But that come during a bad period, mm. which was different. Um, but yeah, it, it, we near, Hule nearly made it. He nearly got us there. Yeah. Nearly got us over the line. But what he did do was he built the platform for the next managers to come. The platform of a wonderful training ground. <clears throat> excuse me, a wonderful training ground, a mentality difference, a shift in mentality, desire to win, be competitive. Mm. Got the supporters back on board, if you like, as well, which was crucial for those managers who then took over. Yeah. No, that's interesting. When I speak to ex-Liverpool players from the 80s and 90s and I ask them about training, they just say, well, we'll play five-a-side. So, obviously, Houllier has changed things in that way. Do you think that old-fashioned Liverpool boot room mentality could have continued into the modern era or did Julier have to do what he did? I think you bring aspects of everything into a successful club and team. Um, I don't think you can ever take away some of the boot room philosophies that made Liverpool great. Um, you know, playing the right way, good football, playing with humility. 
um, never getting above your station, always understanding that what, what you're doing is for the people of the city and the supporters of the club and not for you. That That is evident in Jurgen Klopp's philosophy now, you know. There's a humility about the Liverpool squad at the moment, the work ethic, the connection with the supporters, the understanding of what it means to the supporters, even though there's not many scousers there anymore. Um, that you don't lose. What what it what what you did what it, what happened was it had to be brought forward in terms of the the training intensity, the fitness side of it, the the giving yourself the extra ten percent, twenty percent by doing things right away from the pitch, and not thinking just because you were the best players you could go and you know socialise and do what you please. Those days were gone because players were becoming so physically perfect, they're overtaking you. It doesn't matter on your ability. So there's a mixture. I don't. I, I. I. think it needed tweaking. It needed. It needed not tweaking more than tweaking. It needed a good old revamp, and it got it. But but Julier, Rafa, Brendan, all those people. They. 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 Although they moved it forward with the science and the and the, you know the the technology of football, if you like, and the nutrition and all that bit and the fitness. They still had the understanding of, of what Liverpool was. Yeah. You know, I think they all worked hard at that in terms of their relationship with the supporters, what the supporters wanted to see on the field. I think those, all those managers grasped it. Yeah. And Rafa came in summer of 2004. What do you remember of your first meeting with him and how soon did he tell you that you weren't going to play many games or as many games as you would have expected to do? That was later, just before I left. Um, so he came in, knew what he wanted, coaching-wise. Good. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. I don't want questions. I don't want to debate. This is what we're doing. So when he first come up to on the training pitch to me and Stevie, I don't know if it was exactly the first day, but my first memory, one of the first days, he come up and he said, Hi, boys. He said, Stevie, you need to do more of what he does. And Danny, you need to do more of what he does. Me and Stevie just went, okay, <laughs> what does that mean, you know? What he meant was, I need to be a bit fitter and a bit stronger, maybe, and get about the pitch a bit more and more dynamic. And Stevie needed to just sometimes calm himself down a bit be a bit more tactically aware and self-preserve a little bit like I was. You know, I knew when to, I had a bit more of that. Now, I was never in Stevie's league as a footballer. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, the, 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 the detail in what he said was really clever. And it made sense. And he just said it from nowhere. You know, it was the way he delivered stuff, Rafa. So I worked with him and I was impressed with his, you know, he was... He'd come up to you and say, right, you're playing right midfield. If, if the right back gets it, what are you going to do? And I might say, well, I'm going to come to feet if the fullback's dropping off and try and get half turn. Or if fullback's tight, I'm going to spin. Or if, if neither are on, I'm going to run inside and hopefully he plays it into the front man. I'll get it back in that little hole there. Or he said, that'll do. There's three. That'll do. Now I know what you're doing. Next. You know, that was the way Rafa was. And he was very much his own man. And, you know, although I... People, you know, I was, yeah, that people have got the impression that I I despise him. I don't, because he's a hell of a good manager. I, I respect him. I, I don't like the fact he got rid of me. How could I? It was the club I love. But 
yeah, we've been away on pre-season. I've done really well. He's actually spoke well of me in the press. And to be fair to him, I think he had to generate some of his own funds and space in the squad to bring in his own players. Um, so he pulled me and just said, look, um, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of clubs been in for you. I, I'm going to bring in a couple of midfielders and you're not going to be my first choice. Um, so you're free to go and speak to them. So I said, well, you know, what if I don't want to go? What if I want to stay and fight and, you know, show you what I'm worth? And he said, look, I understand that mentality. He said, I know you like playing. He said, but if I bring players in, they're going to be my first choice, you know, no matter what you do. Um, so your games are going to be limited. And I know that you don't like not play. You've told me that you don't, you know, you want to play. So basically, if you want to play, you, you'd best not stay in here. So I was like, wow. And in football, it's really difficult because you have got a very, very short space of time to make decisions. The window was nearly closing. Um, I spoke to Moisey at Everton. I went to meet Curbs and the chairman at Charlton. I went to meet um, Jack Santini and Frank Arneson at Tottenham. The Everton thing didn't... I just thought, you know what, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't... It was the easy option in terms of staying where I was living, everything. But someone told me I couldn't, someone within me couldn't, I couldn't do it, um, being a red. And I thought as well, new chapter, new location, live your life a bit, you know. So I went down south, fully expecting to think Tottenham would be the club for me. But I couldn't speak to the manager, didn't speak English. Um, it felt like he was only wanting me because Julia had told him that I was worth taking a brisk on. He didn't really know what his team was going to be, who else he was signing. It was all a bit... Frank Arneson was impressive, but I said to Frank, I haven't got a clue what you're doing. I don't know what the team's going to be, where I'm going to play, what he really thinks of me. He doesn't speak English. Like, you want me to jump out of Liverpool, come down south, play for a manager who can't articulate himself very well. You're not in charge. You know, this technical director business. It's like, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. And then I went to meet Curbs out of respect, really. And he was brilliant. Curbs and um, the chairman rolled out the red carpet, made me feel special, um, talked about the signings they were going to make. Not all materialised, by the way, which is a different story. But um, decided, you know what? I, I, I'm going to do it. I felt right. It just felt right. It, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the right decision. Not, not in terms of me not enjoying my time at Charlton. I really did. Uh, up until the end, where me and Curbs had a little fallout. I loved me football there. <clears throat> it was tough at times because you have to adapt really quickly. I was relied on. I was, you know, one of the main players, best paid. There was pressure in that. I'd been used to playing in a team where I had other supers, you know, like I, not other super. I had superstars who were better than me and could carry me along at times. Um, whereas at Charlton, I had to carry, try and carry others at times, you know. But the majority of it was great. Great set of lads. We had a good couple of good spells. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was nice playing for a manager who knew me, knew what he wanted from me. You could talk to, communicate with. And it was a great set of lads, actually. So the brief time I was there, I enjoyed it. Where were you, though, on May the 25th, 2005? And what were your feelings? I was at home in London. Well, sorry, uh, watching the game. Swapping texts with Franny Jeffers, who was an Evertonian, because we played together at Charlton. And he was a mate of mine and he was winding me up on the messages. And it was bittersweet, really, because all my mates were playing, really. You know, Stevie and Carol were my best pals. 
Johnny Reese, Adidia Man, Sammy, all of them. You know, apart from the odd few new ones, they were all my mates from years. You know, I was, I desperately wanted them to win. But, you know, that, that sadness inside you that comes knowing or feeling that you should be there overwhelms you from a selfish, you know, really selfish perspective. Um, so it was a weird, I've never been involved in a situation like that where there's so much happiness at the same time as feeling sadness. I could feel the pride and the goosebumps of their win and seeing Cara and Stevie and all the boys. But I could also felt sad at the same time that I wasn't there with them. It was weird, hmm. really weird. Well, it's an interesting insight to life as a professional footballer. And another one, you alluded to it, you fell out with Alan Kirbishley in your second season at Charlton when you were absolutely flying. And I think you found out that he was trying to move you on to Newcastle, didn't he? And then it all seemed to go pear-shaped. What, what actually happened there? Well, I got, I got wind of... I, Newcastle wanted me, Suey wanted me in Newcastle, but his position was like that at the time as well because they were struggling. And I didn't really fancy it, but I went to knock on Curb's door and I just... Because the way, the way I always was, have it out straight because I don't like the waiting around. It doesn't sit well. I don't sleep. It's like I like to know what's going on. <clears throat> so I just said, look, Curbs, I've heard Newcastle want me. Well, I knew they did because I spoke to Suey, but I couldn't say that. Um, and Curbs, to be fair, was his hands were tied a bit in terms of the finances he'd been promised because he'd done an amazing job and he wasn't getting the funds. And he needed, he was trying to get, I think he was trying to get Amiobi, Stryker and Boya back. For, so I was playing, I'd been playing really well, been flying. I'd nearly got back in the England squad, not quite, but I nearly had, I was playing really well. And I think he thought, well, this is the only asset I've got. I can get two for one because the club aren't giving me any money. That's what I was told. He denied it straight. So I was confused by that. I said, well, you know, all right, whatever, no problem. If you're saying it's not happening, it's not happening. I'll crack on. Anyway, we lost the next game, I think it was, at Everton or somewhere. Um, so he's pulled me in and he's, he said, look, I'm going to leave you out. Your head's not, you know, you, I think your head's not right. I said, what? I've been playing really well. I've had a bad game or two, or a bad game and a half, or a bad half a game, whatever it was. You're going to leave me something going on here. He said, well, why would you leave me out? Anyway, next thing, I'm not training with the first team. So I've had it, I've, I've given it to him a little bit and said me peace and blah, blah, blah. Thinking, okay, this is going to happen, this Newcastle thing. So I'll keep myself fit. I don't really want to go up there, but if I have to, I will. Because I want to play. I always wanted to play. Um, anyway, Suey got sacked. So then Curbs, I think he was feeling a little bit smug. I'd been training hard enough, not been causing a problem, not gotten oppressed with anything. He said, uh, he'd been speaking to my agent as well because I was a bit fuming with it all. Um, he said, right, come on, let's get you back involved. Chelsea away. Get you back in the squad. Let's, get, let's crack on. I thought, great. Don't need the hassle. Let's crack on. I've gone to Stamford, trained with the first team. I've gone to Stamford Bridge. Um, I thought he might put me on the bench, you know what I mean, just to get me back involved, which I'd have understood. 
Um, anyway, he named the team, named the subs. I wasn't even straight. So I'm a senior player, do you know what I mean? I was like, so I got my bag, said, see you later, and walked out. Walked out of Stamford Bridge and got a cab home. Um, and I thought, right, that's it. Find me, do what you want. Like, I am not having that because he, he's done that to, he did that to flex his muscles. And that, that's not the way. He didn't need to do that with me. He could have left me home and said, you need an extra week's training. Or he could have put me on the bench and I'd have taken it on the, you know, on the bench, get back involved with the lads. I'd have taken it. So that week, it was a week left for the, or a week or a bit left for the window, maybe less. Out of the blue, Tottenham come back in for me. Martin York, get a phone call from the agent, Tottenham want you. So I was like, yes, because Tottenham were flying. This is a wonderful opportunity for me. And I played well. I worked hard to, to get myself fit, John. Played well that second season. And thought, right, great. Could be Champions League here next season. He's trying to build the squad. I'm in. Let's make it happen. So, Kerbs has said, absolutely no chance. Joking, not happening, blah, blah, blah. I said, right, OK. So, my agent went to the chairman and basically said, look, the way Danny's been treated, he's never had to do it in his life. I basically said to them, I'm not going to play from now till the end of the season for him because he's treated me badly. And I feel like to a point where the relationship's gone, and I know you're not going to sack him because he's a legend at the club and he's the manager. You've got an opportunity here. Tottenham are willing to pay you X amount plus the wages you're going to save from now till the summer when I'd go anyway because normally you probably wouldn't get signed anyway. In summer, you're probably going to go late July, early August. So you've got from January to late July where you're going to have to pay me what I'm on. And I'm not going to play. And, and obviously the chairman said, like, well, what do you mean you're not? Well, I said, well, I'll be injured. I can train with the kids every day, three days, three times a week, three times a day, whatever. I've never done it before. I don't like being that dickhead, you know. I don't like being that, but I've been pushed. And by the way, was, I'm fine with Kerbs now. This was all in, this is football. Um, so put the marker down I said well do you roll the dice it's up to you your club your money roll the dice fine I've played well enough this season to get a move in the summer so I've got January I've got well what was it was it January window yes yeah. so I've got February March April May it is what it is like I'm, I'm I've got I've got to stand my ground I've got to stand up for myself anyway day before the window the chairman or day of the window the chairman says yeah can, you know curves went mad um, absolutely lost it, but I was like, whatever. It's not, you know, it's my career, isn't it? It's not his. So we got it through two minutes before deadline at Tottenham, um, and it was all a bit messy at the end. And it was a shame because most of the time with Curbs and Merv and Keith and all that was good. And I didn't see Curbs again for ages. We didn't cross paths. You know, the, he left a bit later. Club went down. They they made lots of bad decisions. Um, Starting from then with me, really. Because um, I had a lot of the lads on my side as well. They didn't like that. And they lost a bit of respect for Curbs, some of my mates. They're good mates of mine who I've made at the club. Some I've known a long time as well. Um, managers think that that doesn't matter. It does. Because the lads lose respect if you treat someone badly that they know is a decent lad. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a shame. But then I seen him probably a year, two years. No, probably more than two years later, West Ham Fulham. I'd moved from Tottenham to Fulham. And uh, he'd, he'd come up to me after a game and put his hand down and shook his hand and he was done. That's and I've worked with him since. What, in a punditry Media. role? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, like I say, that's football. But the Tottenham experience, that, 
How do you look back on that one? Because obviously you've joined a big club after your disappointment towards the end at Charlton, but I think there was some personal issues going on there, wasn't there? So it must have been a pretty tough time, though. Well, it's always hard moving in a window and I hadn't played for a few weeks. But when I got there, they were flying, playing really well. They had David, Jenis, um, Carrick. They had a lot of good players. And he was building the squad. And I didn't play too many games. And, and I understood it, really, because they were playing well, changing and winning. You know, and a couple of times I thought he should have played, really didn't. But I didn't have a big drama with it because I knew it was a bigger picture. That summer came... We messed it up the end of the season with the lasagna gate and all that business, which is a story for another day. So we didn't get in the Champions League. Um, so that was a bit of a, a blow for the club. And then when that season started, uh, there was a lot of competition for places and I was fine with that. And I waited me time um, and I had a little good spell. And then my dad got, my dad had a heart attack. Just bad timing. Well, it's never a good time. Um, I didn't think much of it. thought it was just to kick up the bum for him, really. And then realised it was terminal. So I decided, obviously, to spend the last couple of months with him. Which put a spanner right in the works for me at Tottenham. And I didn't go in the press and talk about it. Um, for obvious reasons. Well, not for obvious reasons. I didn't want to. Uh, Martin actually was really good with me. The club was good with me. Gave me the time I needed. And obviously, the impact of that probably changed things for me when I got back to Tottenham as well. Do you know what I mean? So, I look back with great regret that I didn't show my stuff there. I had a good, I had a good couple of months playing at one point where I showed my desire and showed my qualities. But overall, it was a disappointing time and I regret it greatly because they're a brilliant set of supporters and the people in the hierarchy of the club treated me magnificently well. But then you found a home at Fulham. Why, why Fulham? Well, actually, what, what happened was, um, after my dad and all that, and that summer came and went, you know, there was a lot, a lot of people wanted me on loan, and my agent was saying to me, look, a lot of them are asking what happened, why you hadn't been playing, and, you know, falling off a cliff to a degree, not even been involved and stuff. I said, well, just tell them the truth. It's like, it's fine now. I just didn't want it while, I, while it was going on. Um, so there's a few conversations being had. And, and as domino effects with transfer windows, Birmingham and Fulham came in on the last day. Uh, Birmingham, I think they had McLeish in charge and Laurie Sanchez was at Fulham. But where I lived was 10 miles from the Fulham training ground. So I was thinking, perfect. You know, family at home. I just had a baby girl. Um, I say just. She was tiny, you know, small. Um, I didn't really want to be changing location and Laurie spoke really well and he knew a lot about me and what I could bring and all that anyway we, I went there quite quickly but he was playing long ball and we had a lot of good footballers Alexi Smirton Russian captain Simon Davies Welsh captain uh, David Healy people like we had footballers we didn't have you know players who were capable of playing knockdown football and like he'd had success at Northern Ireland and it fell apart it fell off the wheels fell off and luckily Roy came in at the, um, at the right time um, got us playing used the strengths we had and got us out of that trouble and then from then on it just went 
Well, you, know, you, we, you had a big part getting them out of trouble, didn't you? I mean, where does that headed goal against Portsmouth rank that kept them up? May 2008. It was a massive goal because of what it then went on to, you know, the platform we went, we had then to go on and have the success we had as a club. Um, <laughs> it's probably the most important goal I've ever scored. In terms of, I don't just mean financially for the club, I mean in, impacting people's lives. In terms of jobs at the training ground, jobs at the ground, staff, people who were, I didn't know it really at the time. I didn't understand the, the dynamic of, or the, the spiral trouble that that relegation would have brought mm. in terms of people's livelihood. Until afterwards when people were coming up to me and saying, thank you, thank you. I mean, it wasn't all me. We had a great run in Bullard and Brian McBride and so many people contributed. But I, I didn't, I got it after how much it meant to people. Um, and, and of course, personally, it was massive because it, it then gave me the platform to stay in the Premier League with a club that was moving forward under great management. And we had yeah. a wonderful time. Yeah. Well, that Europa League run was bizarre, wasn't it? And again, another underrated achievement. 19 games you played in that. And I think it was July. July you were playing in Austria against a team called Vetra. You scored a penalty. And that's the start of that 19-game run, which was very special. Well, it was... It was um, that, that, those early games were classed as pre-season for us, really. We weren't really thinking about going on and winning it or getting that far in it. Um, we felt really, really proud of this finishing seventh the year before, highest in the club's history. We had a good side. Um, we brought in one or two more. Um, we felt like we had a good season ahead of us. And we didn't want to let that Europa League campaign make the Premier League campaign problematic. Because it can. We've seen it, haven't we? So we talked about that. Uh, and we said, well, let's use the Europa League as, you know, fitness and a welcome distraction, you know, playing in some nice stadiums, see how we do. Like, let's, let's not worry about it too much, which was a great way of going into the games. Um, and, of course, we, we kept free of injuries. Um, we, we, well, I had a little injury that season for about six weeks, actually. But the majority of the squad stayed fit, the big players. And we started building momentum. And the safer we got in the Premier League, the more energy we channeled into the Europa League. But I still think even in those group stages, we didn't really think too far ahead about it. Um, and then obviously the last game of the group, Basel away, who hadn't been beaten there for God knows how long, because they were a good side at home, the Swiss side. Uh, they had some good players. We had to win there to go through. And we did. We played really, really well. Um, and then all of a sudden, you start looking at the draw and thinking, hey, we might have a chance. And then we drew Shakhtar, who were the holders. And we all went, no, we haven't got a chance. Because this was a hell of a side. They had Douglas Costa, William, Fernandinho, Rats, the fullback. They had Adriano playing up top. It was Adriano, Adriano, I think his name was, playing up top. Not the old Brazilians, another Brazilian. I mean, they were, they'd won it. They, they were a proper side. Um, and when we when we beat them, got through against them, all of a sudden you start thinking, wow. And it just went on like that. And it kept going on and on. And actually, by the time we got to the final, I think we probably thought we were just going to win it because fate was meant to be. 
but it wasn't fate wasn't meant to be and it was it was the most devastating feeling and, and the the most horrendous thing i'd probably ever had to, in in the moment that was the worst thing i'd ever dealt with in football losing that mm. final standing on the pitch and do you think maybe it's because of how far you'd come but also because you knew you were nearer to the end of your career than the beginning Yes, both. I think both. Also, I was captain. Hmm. I'd won trophies. I'd never lost a final. Um, and I'd never been a captain. I mean, I'd been up and lifted cups because you get your chance. But, you know, I've got nice pictures of lifting the UEFA Cup and the FA Cup. But as a captain, and I really thought that I'd, my input on that team was bigger than what I'd achieved at Liverpool. My influence. And I also think the the fact that it was so unlikely for a club like Fulham to get to the Europa League final and win it. Don't get me wrong, there is still pleasure and satisfaction from what we achieved in the years I was there, not just that moment. Mm. And actually speaking to many Fulham fans since I finished playing, the joy that they speak, you know, that they had and they speak of when they talk about those times is is humbling. So it's not all about winning the final. But in the moment, I, I, I found it really, really difficult not to capitulate. I did. I did find a way of not because there was other lads who I think who hadn't been as fortunate as me in my career mm. and won things, knowing that was their only chance gone. Yeah. And, and that I could see it. I could feel it. Yeah. And you'd really bought into that Fulham journey and you obviously enjoyed the leadership. Would you have liked to have been that leader on the pitch earlier on? And at that stage of your football life, are you half looking towards coaching and managing? Not really. I think, I think I'd learned a hell of a lot through adversity. Um, I helped Stevie when he got the captain's arm and me and him were roomies at the time. We were good mates. And I saw a lot of those things he had to cope with being captain, responsibility. I mean, it's different at Liverpool, of course, but I'm talking about taking team meetings, talking with the players, trying to take problems on board. Not easy. I don't think I'd have coped well with that at Liverpool because I had enough work trying to stay in the team. I think when I was at Fulham, I was ready, especially after the problems I'd had at Tottenham and Charlton, fallouts with Curbs, fallouts with Yol making up with the old, going through the experience with my dad, dealing with Daniel Levy and how gracious he was in letting me go when he knew the problems I'd been through and how much I wanted to play and not charging a fee for me and all those things. Dealing with different hierarchies of football clubs and um, watching someone like Robbie Keane and Ledley King at Tottenham, the way they captain. Um, all those things. I think by the time I got to Fulham, I felt ready. I didn't get it straight away, the armband, but when I got it, I was ready. Mm. I'm not sure again, the earlier would have, would have been good for me. Yeah. Um, and it, and, it, and it, it, it made me grow. It made me more responsible in terms of my own. But I, do you know what's great when you get older? I don't know, most footballers must feel this, but I definitely did. Is knowing when you go on a pitch exactly what you're good at and what you're not and, and being all right with it. And knowing how to control yourself. I was good at controlling my discipline. Very rarely got sent off. Um, I was good at 
staying calm when others in my own team were losing it a bit. In terms of when I say staying calm, I'm talking about in the way I played. Not saying stay calm. Anyone can do that. I'm on about taking the ball and actually getting us playing, and just calming things down. That I was very comfortable with where I was at in that in that in that way in a football way. So it was easier for me to help others because I was all right. Mm. And that's the problem with younger captains. I think very hard to take on an armband when you're young, when you're trying to develop your own football wisdom. Yeah. Um, I I was probably although I got wiser and wiser each season. The more you play, I. I when I was captain of Fulham, there's not much more I could have learned about myself, really. And I got, the impression, I got the impression that you worked closely with Roy Hodgson. How much respect did you have for him as a coach? Did we really get to see at Fulham what maybe we should have seen at Liverpool? Or did you see something in Roy that made you realise why it didn't work for him at Liverpool? I think it's difficult. I mean, the England and Liverpool jobs were... Roy is generally he's he's a defensive coach generally. Um, likes to be a good foundation, hard to be like Rafa, in many ways. Um, where Roy struggled at Liverpool is he didn't he didn't have the transfer budget. He 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 didn't bring in any quality. Um, Stevie got injured. Torres didn't want to be there. Kenny was sitting behind him waiting. It was all Roy never had a chance really. Um, but could Roy have adapted and gone on the front foot like Rafa did and played more a high press, high tempo? I'm not sure because I didn't see that in him at Fulham, really. Um, so I, I, I think maybe he's probably better suited to the underdog role, probably. But that, that's, not, that's not completely fair in that he's a very intelligent man. And I think the longer he'd have grown into a role, at Liverpool and got better players, I think he'd have been much happier letting players go free because he wasn't that rigid at Fulham. You know, he, he gave you the platform and the structure, but he still didn't mind you adapting that to when, as you, when you felt. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't a tyrant by any means. He'd just give you the framework and then trust you to make the right decision. So maybe, maybe, maybe he could have done more at Liverpool given time, but it wasn't meant to be. <clears throat> All I can judge him for on how he was with me. And the team, he was honest, intelligent, tactically aware, very good communicator, very, very good communicator. Um, and I respected him greatly. And he, and he treated everybody, everybody the same. You never saw him, he would give as much time and effort on the training pitch and off it to those lads not playing as those who were. And that sounds a very, very simplistic thing. But I'm telling you now, most managers don't do that. He's a, he's, a, he's a gentleman. And the fact he's still managing the Premier League at his age says everything about it. Well, there's an art and a science to keeping things simple and getting your points across, exactly like you say. So why did you end up moving to Blackburn then and, and winding down your career in the Championship? Because from the outside looking in at that period of time, I mean, I worked out in Singapore, so there was a guy called Shebby Singh who was a pundit on TV. All of a sudden, he's heavily involved at Blackburn Rovers. I couldn't believe what I was watching. The Venkies had taken over. They were, they were the most unpopular owners ever. Steve Keane, who I've done a lot of work with, he was possibly the most unpopular manager of all time. But yet you've thrown yourself in there. Well, I don't know how long you've got, but the, the, the story's a bit complicated. So the Blackburn option was fantastic based on the other options I had. 
Now, it was fantastic because the only other option I had was QPR with Mark Hughes. And the, the Blackburn deal was better financially. But it was also a two-year deal. And, and, and at my age, QPR wanted to only give me a one-year deal. And the second one based on appearance, appearances, second year. I'd been doing that for five years at Fulham anyway, trusting my own ability to play games and keep whoever out of the team, mm. which was unfair, but typical Fulham because they didn't look after the players at all. So the Blackman thing was obvious. I got on with Steve Keane. I respected him as a coach. I liked him as a guy. He was spending money on good players. Um, and if we'd have had everyone fit, we'd have gone up. I'm telling you that now. We lost Bestie with a cruciate who was flying. We lost Kazim for two months, Richards, who was flying. Um, we, we, the, interruption, the interruption from above, as you said, Shebby and the different people, wasn't fair on Kino. But even when he left, we were in, we were in the top two, top three. When he, even when he walked, we were top three. So let's get that right about Kino. But the thing went, oh, let's go back a little bit. I, I should never have been in the position to have to take an offer from the championship to help the end of your career financially and also to make sure I was playing first-team football because that's ultimately what I wanted. I didn't want to finish my career sitting on the bench. Now, QPR, I think, could have played. Looking back, they, they should have signed me, to be fair. I don't think they'd gone down if they did. Um, and I believe, you know, Mark Hughes made a mistake there, really. And I did tell him that at the time. But anyway, um, Fulham put me in a position I should never have been at what I gave for that club. Um, I missed three games under Martin Yoll in my final season. Three games when we finished top half of the table. And I was captain. Now, they wanted to move, they wanted to bring new players in and younger players. Of course they did. Understandable. And they wanted to bring someone in who could do replace me. And Martin and I talked about no problem. I can help someone do that whilst playing a quota of games, but give me another year on my contract, I'm fine. The chief exec, Alistair McIntosh, didn't really want me around. He didn't like my... I'd had words with him most pre-seasons about what was going on at the club and who they're not looking after and not signing him on a new contract. And you know, There was always something going on with me and Alistair, to be fair to him. Partly me, partly him. But he didn't... He, Alistair thought he walked on water because of what Roy did. Um, bringing in Small in, making a fortune on the Europa League run. But that was all because of Roy. Roy brought in Schwarzer, Roy brought in Zamora, Roy brought in Andy Johnson. Alistair didn't do any of that. And, they, and brought them all in on peanuts. No one was earning big money when, when Roy was there. So, so Alistair and Martin between them were passing me off in the last season. Normally the contract would be done by February. Anyway, I missed three games, four games I think it was that season. And they tried to cut my contract by half. Now considering I wasn't even in the top five players earners, earners anyway, which I didn't mind. That's life. I was like, you're taking the mickey out of me. I'm disgusted at it. And you can shove it where the sun don't shine. And Alistair actually said to me one day, which I'll never forget, where are you going to go? I said, it doesn't matter where I'm going to go because I'm not going to be here. I'll go anywhere. And they did it. They shafted Andy Johnson. They didn't offer Clint Dempsey. has been top goal scorer for three years. and He was on 20 grand a week. He had scored 20 goals in his last season by the time they offered him a new deal and they offered him 40. He'd already been tapped up by Tottenham and whoever else. February, they offered him a contract. Um, they messed around with everyone. Every, it was just a shambles. So I told Martin, 
and Alistair what would happen. You're going to lose all the senior players in one hit. You're going to try and bring in younger players who aren't quite up to it, not just on the pitch, but don't know what you know about the discipline of it. And you're going to go down. But, but fine, do what you've got to do. I'm off. So I ended up going to Blackburn. I phoned Fulham. I said, look, I'm going to Blackburn. Or QPR, I told them. Might be going to Blackburn, but I'm leaving. So I won't be resigning. I won't be signing that 50% cut, pay, you know. So when I said I'm leaving, they said, oh, okay, we'll give you the contract. So I said, politely told them where to go because that's just, this is someone who'd give everything for that. Yeah. I'd hardly missed a game in five years. So I was disgusted. Didn't go public with it really till later. I told that story. I mean, it's it's disgrace really what they did and to others. And you know what? The worst thing is, and it's never. I don't even think I've ever talked about it. When I was at Blackburn, I was playing all right at start the first few months of the season. We were doing all right. They brought in me, I think, to play in midfield. A Greek guy called Karagounis. Tell me about that. Anyway, they were near the bottom, near relegation. Fans yeah. were going mad. They tried to get me back. And you know me being me, love Fulham, love the fans. I said, I'll come back. And at the time, Blackburn said no. And guess what? Fulham were prepared to pay the money that Blackburn were paying me, which was double what they offered me. It's unbelievable how football works. The madness of it. The internal madness. machinations. Madness. So then, moving forward a little bit, finished the career at Blackburn, as we talked about, taken over it's all gone wrong they managed to just stay up because of Berbatov that first season then they got relegated in second which was always going to happen I saw it coming everyone saw it coming didn't take a scientist told yeah. Martin it had happened <laughs> Martin shook hand on the deal Martin actually shook hand and said he'd get the deal done for me I went around to his house with the kids and he's still back he's still back down on that that's, that's the honesty in football. that's the integrity of football I'm telling yeah. you now but anyway so the Americans asked me to come in later and a guy called Mark Lampin and, and, and explain what had happened, where the club had gone to, why. So I said, yeah, of course. I did that. I went in, I explained what had happened, what Alistair had done, what Martin had done, the way they treat players, the disrespect, blah, blah, blah. And then I got involved in helping them, trying to um, you know, get a new manager and what I thought they needed. And they just, everything I said, they just didn't listen to, ignored me. <laughs> And every time I said, you know, well, you know, we're going to get a technical director in, we're going to bring Mike Riggie in, we're, um, we're going to do this, we're going to do I said, well, this is my experience of him, this is the way I think you should be going. They went and did exactly the opposite of what I did. So I just, in the end, you know what I had to do, and this is really sad, is I just said, to them, there's still one guy on the board that had got on with great, but as for everyone else, I just had to say, don't call me, don't speak to me, I'm done mm. with the club, because you have treated me like something on the bottom of your foot. Mm. And yeah. even when you ask me to come back and help, you don't listen. Yeah, that's football. So, that's football. It it's life, isn't it? Yeah, but talking about disappointments, well, I don't know if it was disappointing how you look back on this. Your, your England career, do you think that you should have won more than, what, nine caps? Or do you just think you were incredibly unlucky about that era of midfielders, particularly central midfielders, that you were up against in the early 2000s? Do you know what? Yeah, I, I actually just look back and at times I think mm, maybe I could have done a bit better there. Um, you know, a, a training for England or I could have maybe put my stamp on things a bit more there. Or, but ultimately, the quality around me was better than me. And sometimes you have to... There was a, there was a, there 
there was a spell where I was playing well on the left for Liverpool where I thought I should have started a couple of games for England. And they went with the likes of Kieran Dyer or whoever else it was at the time. Push Gozi out there or Stevie out there or whatever Sven did. And he could have put me in there because I was playing it regularly and I was playing well and he didn't. Um, even a couple of lads who were playing at the time said to me I should have started a couple of games more. But ultimately, you know, my chance came at the 2002 World Cup because of injuries. And when Trev replaced me because I did my metatarsal, which was devastating, when Trev flew over for me, um, I had a feeling he might get in the team because there was such a problem and there was more injuries while the tournament was going on. So I'd have played in that, but that was the nearest I would have got and the injury set me back. I, I have to hold my hands. You have to hold your hands up. I mean, you're talking about when I started, Bex, Scolzi, Nicky Bott, Lamps, Stevie G, Kieran Dyer. Um, then, you know, Joe Cole came to the fore. Um, Owen Hargreaves, people like this. You know, it, it, talking about some unbelievable players there. You know, it was a really, really talented group. When you think about the England midfield now, it's probably the area where they need a bit more competition. It's yeah. just a bit of luck, isn't it? I, I, was, I would rather play nine games for England than have played, you know, 80 for Republic of Ireland. Because although, although I've got a real closeness with my dad's side or my dad's um, family's history and the Irish side, the Irish blood in me, you know, I love my Irish music and I've, I've, been, I go over there a lot and I'm, I'm, I know I missed out on I might have played in bigger tournaments I was always brought up in England I, I feel English I, I, I think that would have been I think that would have been wrong for me to do that mm. I never got the choice it was too late when I had the choice but I was proud of actually being good enough to wear the England shirt even once yeah no good answer I like that so there was no island manager who tapped you up it was too late in the day when you found out you were eligible yeah, because the rules were different back then. Mm. Um, I'd played for England at nearly every youth level. Mm. So I'd been played like European under-18 qualifiers, 19 qualifiers, 20 qualifiers. I don't know what the rules were. Mm. But as soon as you'd played in a certain amount of qualifiers or even won uh, 18 over, I mm. think it was, might be mistaken with that, then you weren't then eligible to choose. So I only realised about a year after my choice had become, I, I didn't have a choice. Right. Okay. And just finally then, Danny, where were you when Liverpool won the title this season? How did you celebrate? And secondly, where does this Liverpool side rank in the 35 years that you've been watching the football club? Um, well, I was at home um, watching it like the Liverpool players were because it was the Chelsea game that won it for them, wasn't it? And yeah, I did have a, a little GMT to celebrate. Um, I think this side... It's very hard judging sides now from the past. Um, I think if you were to pick a joint team, you would pick bits of both. Mm. That's for sure. But I think what they've done um, is, is, is nothing short of remarkable, really, because they have overtaken one of the best teams we've ever seen. And, and, and arguably, one, probably in terms of talent, you know, that City team that got the 100 points, and then the 98 points, was it, over two years, played some of the best football we've ever seen. And Liverpool overcame that team um, by, yes, having great individuals, but the, co the collective spirit, energy, um, will, 
quality, all those things mixed, to overcome that team and play the level of football Liverpool have over a period of time to overcome them, after the disappointment of losing out by one point, makes it one of the greatest achievements in the club's history. Because I don't think it would have been... I don't think you could have criticised them for thinking after last year missing out on a point at 97, which would have won it every other year. I don't think if they'd have dipped a bit this season, anyone would have held it against them. But they didn't. Somehow with the manager and his staff, they, they, they got in the mindset or somehow used it to create a stronger mindset and a more determined mindset. And I find that remarkable as a collective. And they didn't spend... You know, I mean, let, let's get it in perspective. Most clubs push on by bringing in a couple of superstars. They didn't. They just, they just, they, they built more camaraderie. They, they, they gained more um, character. They gained more togetherness and spirit by losing that league last year than I've ever seen. I mean, they used it so positively, which is, you know, you've got to give Klopp credit for that. How he, how he galvanised that squad. Of course, winning the Champions League created less pressure. Because getting that first trophy for him and the team was important. But I think trying to measure what they've done this season or, or the last two seasons is going, to be, is going to be hard, really. Because I, I think it's only going to be until probably four or five years' time where we see what the, what the consistency of what these two teams have done. You'll be able to gauge it. But I, I think, we're, I think we're, we're watching something special, aren't we, with this rivalry with these two teams? I, I mean, this season hasn't been a rivalry in the league. Liverpool have absolutely dominated it. Mm. But I think next season it'll, it'll be closer. I, I, I just think that Liverpool have done everything right. You know, they've learned, Klopp learned from his first couple of seasons where later in games they couldn't keep up the tempo. Um, they, 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 they've learned from that. He's learned from that. I think the recruitment's been brilliant. Mm. No desperation. Yeah. No overspending. Didn't try and replace Coutinho like for like. Change the dynamic of the team. Three midfielders who all go that way and all go that way and all know the job. Waited for Van Dijk. Didn't panic. Didn't think I've got to get someone. We're struggling. Waited for the right keeper. You know everything he's done in terms of recruitment has been spot on. And and the the I think the success that they've had to this point has probably come sooner than anyone could have anticipated. It's remarkable, really. I think that's a brilliant way to end it, Danny. We're all looking forward to see how that rivalry develops, like you say, and teams like Chelsea and Manchester United coming to the fore. But thanks ever so much for your time, Danny. I massively appreciate it. No and problem. I'll see you on the nice TV very soon. talking about good things. Oh, good. No, I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I think it's fascinating looking back on uh, the career that you've had. And I love that transition into the media because it is so such a difficult one to achieve. So, no, I think you've done great. Thanks, mate. No, it was nice to talk to you. No problem at all. That's comfortably the longest podcast to date, but I enjoyed every second of talking to Danny. I hope you did too. Please get in touch on Twitter via at Richard Lenton. That's at Richard Lenton. Yes, as you can tell, I got in very early on Twitter and then I've hardly ever used it over the last decade. Tell me what you think as well, because I was going to split that interview into two parts, but then I thought, you know, what the hell? 
It's an hour and a half. You can always pause it and come back to it. Thank you once again to the Phoenix Sports and Media Group and also to Simon Oates, a.k.a. Junk Science, for the music. Ben Chappell, who kindly edited my first podcast with Michael Thomas and gave me a real blueprint to kind of move forward. I'm hoping in the future that I can get Ben back on board to be editing the podcasts on a more permanent basis because he is far more talented as an editor than I am. And also a big thank you to Leisha McCann, whose voiceover you'll hear in a few seconds' time. Footballers Lives was brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. www.psm-group.co.uk